We read from Revelation chapter 19, and we're beginning to read from verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth And their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Well, let's uh, turn together to Revelation 19, this passage that we read a moment ago that apparently I'm going to make so clear. Goodness. Uh, Those of you who uh, don't perhaps know, uh, should know that I have a a daughter who is at university in um, Scotland. And of course, occasionally, uh, mail comes for her, post comes for her. And it's one of those slightly awkward things. Do you open it or do you not? So usually you you ring and you say, oh, there's a letter here for you. And she says, well, tell me what it says on the outside. And I say, tell you what it says on the outside. She says, uh, oh, yeah, open that and read it. That's fine. Or or, or maybe it's uh, just just send it, leave it as it is, just send it over, and we find, well, we'll never know what's in there, but, uh, but, but one of the things that we, you, you, it feels a bit awkward reading somebody else's mail, doesn't it? And, well, maybe some of you are used to it, I don't know, but, but uh, it feels a little bit strange, and, and one of the things that we've got to remember as we're opening the pages of this remarkable book of Revelation is that it was originally written to somebody else. doesn't mean it's not for us, it is absolutely for us, but but it was originally written for someone else. It's true of all the Bible, but especially it's helpful to remember that 
for this book. And, and, and this book we know was written to Christians of seven churches in the early chapters of this book. You remember many, many months ago now, we saw that the way that those churches are listed is in the order that the postman would have taken the letter. And presumably what happened was they, they went to the first church and it was read out as the church gathered and, and, and presumably copied then at that point and then taken on to the next one and, and read out and copied and so on and so on. And, and that's how the letter of Revelation would have, uh, the book of Revelation would have circulated amongst the early church. And, and pretty much all of those who heard it, who read it, who heard it, they would have been Christians who were going through pretty tough times. Uh, these were the days of Nero. Uh, there were growing persecutions against Christians. Following Jesus was really costly. At some points, these persecutions were, were weaker and then stronger, and in some places they were weaker and stronger, but, but pretty, pretty much everywhere. To, to set out to follow after Jesus was to, to really go against the grain. It was to go against the crowd. It was to set yourself on a different pathway from those around you who believed in, in many gods, in, in different moral norms. And you really went against the tide if you were going to follow Jesus. Some of you won't even, even know who this is, but, but Terry Wogan used to be a chat show host on, on uh, the BBC. And uh, he, he had a number of uh, famous guests. And, and once he interviewed Billy Graham, the great evangelist. And I remember very well Billy Graham uh, speaking about following the, Jesus along the narrow road. And, and Billy Graham said that as he thought about that narrow road, he, he imagined it running up the middle of the broad road, but going in the opposite direction. So that if you were going to follow Jesus along that narrow road, you were going to bump into everybody on the way. And, and I think for, for many of us now, if we're Christians and we're following Jesus, we, we feel that, don't we? we? We're sort of bumping up against people who are heading in the opposite direction and bumping up against the culture as it, it sort of comes at us. And, and, and these Christians would have felt that very much, finding it hard. And, and as you're following Jesus in a situation like that, you're going to ask a question sooner or later. And that is, is it worth it? And you're also going to ask, can I trust him? Now, is it worth it? Depends on what lies ahead. And can I trust him? In some ways, depends on who he is. And it's really that sort of second question that we're turning to tonight. Can I trust him? And that depends on who he is. And in lots of ways, this book really helps people who were asking those questions, it, because it tells them something of what lies ahead, but it helps us to see who Jesus is so that we may know we can trust him. We're sort of giving away the answer, yes, absolutely, we can trust him. Because that's not just a question, of course, for Jews in, or, or Christians uh, from Jewish background or from a Gentile background in Asia Minor. Uh, that's a question for us, isn't it? Some of you uh, spend most of your week in places where the people at best think that the things that you believe are a little bit quaint. But maybe they actually believe, think that the things that you believe are, are actually harmful. And you feel absolutely on the back foot. Uh, some of you are, are, are going into places where you're trying to be a witness and, and, and you're constantly looking out for opportunities, but you, you really don't know when to speak and when to be silent. And, and, and often you feel you get it wrong and you want to get it right. 
Some of you want to talk to your friends about Jesus. You want to invite them here next Sunday night to hear John Woodside. And you just wonder, if, if I put myself out on a limb like that, can I trust Jesus? And of course, it's not only that interface with the world where we need to trust Jesus. It's, it's also in the challenges of life. We, we, we know that He is with us. We know that the plans and purposes He has for us are good, but sometimes we find that, that His way for us leads us through some difficult, dark places. And when we're in that situation, whenever it's a health situation or we're thinking about getting older or or we're worried about someone that we care for, or any one of a number of issues, we, we, we ask that question, can I really trust Him? And I think it's one of the things that, that I end up praying with people, probably more than anything else, Lord, help us to trust You in the middle of this situation. Well, really think this is going to help us. We're going to see who Jesus is here because in, in, in Revelation 19, we get to see Jesus up close. We're going to see that He's wonderful and that we can trust Him. We're getting near, as Peter said, we're getting near the end of this book, and <clears throat> this book gives us lots of insight into how things are behind the scenes, but it also tells us that one day Jesus will wrap everything up. History is not going to go on forever. Jesus will call time on everything. And, and as we get near the end of the book, it is that sort of picture that tends to dominate. Very often we've said we, we're in this at the moment. The things that, that the book is describing, we're living in the midst of. But there are some things that are yet to come. And, and the, 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 the final sort of battle, as it were, sometimes we use that, that word of the last battle, the, the, that final battle lies ahead. And uh, this is what we're, we're getting to really uh, tonight. Uh, we know that, that Satan is a terrible foe. We've seen that already. We've seen that, uh, for example, in chapter 13, verse 4, we, we see that uh, the beast, a uh, representation of something that Satan works within this world, is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So he's a terrible foe for the church. And we've seen in these last chapters that that it's dominated, in a sense, by opposition to Christ and His people. And you might sort of wonder, well, how on earth could, could anything deal with this? And then we come to chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. So, this is Jesus. Jesus is in the picture. The fact that John tells us that he sees this horse and then the rider called Faithful and True reminds us that this is a vision. So it's lots of picture language here. He doesn't just say, I saw Jesus. He, he, he uses this picture language. But Jesus is right at the center of John's gaze. So, so what are we going to see tonight? Well, uh, three things, I think, uh, that we're going to see. We're, we're going to see, first of all, that Jesus is the one who cannot be surpassed. So we're, so we're asking the question, can we trust him? Well, let's think what he's like. He's the one who can't be surpassed. Nobody above him. So, so you look at some of the descriptions of, of Jesus here. They're wonderful. Faithful and true. That's a reference back to chapter 1, verse 5, where Jesus is called a faithful witness in chapter 3, verse 14, the faithful and true witness. So he's done exactly what his father called him to do. He's a faithful witness. He's obeyed God's will perfectly. We see his eyes. Oh, interesting how Revelation 
focuses on the eyes of Christ, eyes like flaming fire. What does this mean? It, 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 it's a reference to the fact that he knows. He, he knows what's going on. He, he sees both the challenges that his church faces and his church itself, herself. And it's a big part of what it means to trust him, isn't it? You find yourself in, in a situation and you think, can I trust Jesus? Part of the answer to that question is, is does he know me and what I'm going through? And then we, we see, but oh, well, he's got eyes of flaming fire. These are, are not normal eyes. These are eyes that see. He knows everything about you and your circumstances. Came across something from Jim Packer recently. I don't know if you know Jim Packer. Jim's, Jim Packer is an, an elderly man now who, who was a great Bible teacher, wrote lots of really classic Christian books. And he is an old, frail man. And as he is getting nearer to the end of the road, godliness is just shining out of him. There's been a few video clips of him going around the internet. He's just a marvelous man. He wrote this very recently. There is a tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can delusion, disillusion him about me now. Isn't that brilliant? Eyes of flaming fire. He knows me. He knows what I face. He's the one of all power. You, you remember that, that we saw these, these beasts, we're going to say a bit more about them in a moment, but these beasts in previous chapters, these uh, figures, these picture figures, and they were described with numbers of crowns in their head, 10 crowns and so on. And, and, and the picture was that they had great power. If you've got 10 crowns in your head, you're not just like someone who has one crown has, has got a certain amount of authority. You've got lo lots of authority. How many crowns does Jesus have? He has many crowns, many, many more crowns, you see, than his enemies. And you notice then in verse 12 that he has a name that no one knows but himself. Now, that's puzzled some people because these are verses that are revealing Jesus. Why should there be a some name that we can't know about? Well, it is saying that he's in some way mysterious, and it's probably a reference to the fact that, that we cannot fully grasp him. It's important that we know that. That, that we're never going to say, even, you know, whenever we've been singing uh, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, even if we've been there 10,000 years, we're never going to say, well, I really know Jesus now, know all about him, nothing more for me to find out. Because we're never going to fully grasp him. He's God after all. He is, he's like an ocean whose depths we cannot plumb. And there's maybe something else there as well. In the ancient world, you might remember that, that knowing someone's name was a sort of a, a key in, in, in power, in, in, in battles and so on, especially spiritual battles. So you remember, for example, in, in uh, the Gospels where Jesus comes up against the man who has been uh, possessed by the legion of demons. And what does he say? He asks the demon, what is your name? And the thought was, you see, that to get someone's name was to have a bit of a hold over them. And, and the demon must give his name. My name is Legion, for we are many, he says. And Jesus, of course, then casts, him, casts out the demons into the pigs, and they're, they're destroyed. Uh, and, and no one's going to get a hold on Jesus, because there are aspects of him that he 
only knows. His enemies can't do that. Well, he's not a total mystery, of course, because he's been revealed to us, and that's he, he is indeed the revelation of God. He's the Word of God. John has told us about that in the opening verses of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he, he came and tabernacled amongst us, pitched his tent amongst us. He, he came to reveal God and to, to be with us. And then another name in verse 16, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is written on his robe and on his thigh. And remember where he is. He, he's on a horse. It's the two places that would be most visible if you were looking at a rider on a horse, on the robe and on the thigh. And and so here is the name that is being proclaimed to all who will see him, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings in the Bible sometimes associated with sort of a God-given power within this world. In other words, there's no king, no earthly king like him. And Lord of Lords is something to do with divinity. In other words, he has a status equal to God's. Now, you see, all of this is to say, well, who is this Jesus? There's nobody like him. Uh, he, he can't be surpassed. Now, what does that mean for you? Well, well, you know, if you're in that situation where following him is just difficult, the circumstances of your life are difficult, you, 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 you look at him and you say, well, he's, he's faithful and true. He sees me. He's greater than I can grasp. And yet, you do grasp him because he has come near, and there's no one who surpasses him. So, so can you trust him? Yes, you can. You can trust him with your witness. You can trust him with your family. You can trust him with your illness. You can trust him with your future. You can trust him with your eternity. He's the one who's unsurpassed. He's also the one who saves and judges. We, we see both of those things here in this picture. In some ways, Revelation is a bit like, like, like pulling together all the threads of the Bible, bringing it into one place, and they're just all these sort of pictures and threads that come into this book and, and, and pick up themes that run everywhere through the Scriptures. And, and uh, we see here that there are themes that speak about both his salvation and especially here, actually, his judgment. Now, I don't know what comes into your mind whenever you think of Jesus. Maybe you imagine certain biblical scenes that you remember from maybe being a child or in Sunday school or something. You think of him teaching. You think of him feeding people. You think of him welcoming children. You, you remember the hymn, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. All of those things, of course, are true. You, you, you remember him, maybe thinking of him in his vulnerability on the cross where, where he's allowing sinful men to do things to him. He's incredibly humble, his submission. But the pictures we have in these verses are very different. He is coming to conquer. Now, the battle that we've talked about, this last battle, is not described here in detail, but, but he is coming to deal with his enemies. He's the the conquering king. He comes with his robe dipped in blood. Now, what do you think that means? Well, it's divided opinion. Some think it's a reference to judgment. Later on, he's going to be speaking, spoken of as treading the winepress of the fury of God's wrath in verse 15. And so, you could understand how if you were trampling the grapes in a winepress, your clothes would get splattered with the juice and so on. And so, is this what's turned his robe red? Is it a reference to his judgment? 
Well, the problem with that is that it doesn't come until after he appears with his robe already red. And so, so others have said this is probably a reference to the cross. So the blood on the robe, whose blood is it? It's his blood. His victory is achieved supremely there as he lays down his life. This allows him to to conquer without question. I, I think that makes more sense in the flow of the image. And, and he's the one who saves, you see. He's the conquering king who is the author of salvation. And we see that too in that he comes with an army. Look at verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now often, you and I, we, we, we think about the armies of heaven as angels, and sometimes that's what they're described as. But, but this reference seems to be to believers arrayed in fine linen. Back in chapter 7, verse 14, we see that they make their garments white in the blood of the Lamb. So here's the Jesus who saves. He saves his people, and then he brings them into this last battle with them. But he's the one who conquers sword of his word, his sword from his mouth, strikes down his enemies. He rules over the nations with a rod of iron. That's a reference back to Psalm 2. And, and he does indeed trample his enemies in the winepress of God's wrath. Those who oppose him are, are dealt with. Now, we've said that these are not the first things that come into our minds whenever we think of Jesus. But partly that's a testimony to how little hostility we have faced for our faith in this world. There are brothers and sisters tonight, and when they think of Jesus, they think of him as the conquering king, and they long for this day. I remember reading, all of us should read this, it's, it's an old book now, Richard Wurmbrandt's book, Tortured for Christ, tells the, the, the story of, of of Richard Wormbrandt, this incredible pastor who lived in, in Romania and, and had tremendous difficulties as a follower of Jesus. And, and one of the things that struck me as I read it as a young Christian was the, the particular emotion that happened when somebody else became a Christian. You know, we, we hear somebody becoming a Christian, and we think, fantastic, how brilliant that is. And, and what we're sort of thinking is that th their life is going to get better and better. When someone became a Christian with Richard Wurmbrandt, oh, there was deep joy. But there was also sorrow because they knew that, that this new brother or sister had embarked upon a life of suffering and challenge, maybe even death. And they longed for a Jesus who was a conquering king. So again, what does this mean for us? when our life is hard and we're wondering, can we trust him? Well, he's the one who, who saves and judges. Look at his power. Do you know, you're in, you're in this story. You're in this chapter. You're in one of these groups or the other. If you're a Christian here tonight, you're in his army. You didn't know you could ride a horse, did you? You're in his army, or you're, you're in the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. And if you're in the army, you can trust him because he has shed your blood, shed his blood to get you there. You deserve to be in the winepress. I do. 
but you find yourself arrayed in fine linen. And those were not robes that, that you did yourself. He's cleansed you. And if he's done that for you, can you trust him? He's the God who saves and judges. And then the last thing, just to say, he's the one who crushes his enemies. He deals with the enemy. <clears throat> now, I said that there's not that many details in this part about the, the battle, and neither there are. The, 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 the enemy assembles its forces against the Lord in verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and all their armies gather together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Now, if you were here, you might remember back in chapters 13 and 14 that there were two beasts. There was Satan, the great dragon, and then there were two beasts, one emerging from the sea and from the land. And the one from the sea represented sort of state power, political power, inspired by the evil one, turned against the church. And the, and the beast from the, the land represented false ideology and false religion, again inspired by the evil one and turned against the church. Sometimes those two things work together. And here it looks as if it is the beast from the uh, sea who, first of all, comes and comes with uh, political power, with the kings of the earth, the armies, and so on. But we see that actually everyone is arrayed against the church one way or the other. And uh, you expect that there's going to be a great showdown. You, you expect there to be a blow-by-blow -blow account of the battle that follows. But there's not. It just says that these forces are defeated. They are dealt with. The beast and the false prophet. The false prophet is then the beast from the land, which stands from the, for the false ideologies and religions. And they're swiftly dispatched, you see. There's no back and forward in this battle. It's just Jesus dealing with them. And they're thrown into this lake of fire. Again, it's a picture. But you see, all who are opposed to him are, are, are dealt with. The beasts, the Satan will be dealt with in the next chapter. But the beasts are dealt with, and, and, and all who follow are, are, are slain by the sword from his mouth. So just as creation is brought into being by his word, so judgment is executed by his word. All of his enemies are wiped out. And, and, and what happens next is, is coming after verse 17, an angel has already called, knows what way the battle is going to go, and has called for the birds of the air. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men of horses and their riders and all the flesh of all the people, slave, free and slave, small and great. See, the angel knows that there's going to be a slaughter. Presumably these are the, the vultures and the crows and the buzzards that live off the carrion. And, and now the battle is complete and they, they eat their fill. Now last week, you remember, at the beginning of this chapter, we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. John was looking at that with you. What an incredible feast that will be. The angel tells John in chapter 19, verse 9, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So there's a feast at the beginning of chapter 19. And now at the end of chapter 19, there's another feast. 
Those who oppose God are devoured. So you see the two feasts in this chapter? So different, aren't they? You see what it's saying? It's, it's all the way through the Scriptures, isn't it? Take a side for him or against him. Either you come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and you enjoy the feast with him, or you oppose the Lord Jesus and you are on the menu. You feast or you are feasted upon. It's really stark. He is the one who triumphs over his enemies. Now, I know sometimes we Christians can be overly simplistic about who is in and who is out. I, I know that that's in us sometimes. And we speak about them, and, and they're definitely Christians, and they're definitely not. And sometimes that's a little bit harsh and perhaps presuming to know what the, only the Holy Spirit knows. But there's another danger within our age, and perhaps a greater danger for many of us. And that is that, that, that we think, well, as long as I've got Jesus... Do you know what's true for me? And, and, and for other people, maybe there's another way. Maybe, maybe it's not that important. But look at the starkness of this. You feast or you're feasted upon. You're in the army in fine linen or you're in the wine press. You're with Christ or you're against him. And we must allow the reality of that division to move us, to motivate us. Maybe next Sunday night is not the right thing for your non-Christian friend to come to. But do you know in your heart that above all else, those that you care for outside of Christ must hear the gospel, must close with Christ. And if not next Sunday night, then how is that going to happen? They need to meet Jesus before they meet him on the white horse. So can you trust him? Well, how would you know? It depends who he is, doesn't it? Can you trust him with the stuff that's going on in your heart just now? Can you trust him with the things you're walking into this week? He's the one who's unsurpassed. He's the one who saves and judges. He's, he's the one who deals with the enemy. Brother and sister, you can trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we feel like the man falling before Jesus who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We find ourselves confident before you because of your greatness, your power, your majesty, your saving work, your judging work. And Lord, we know that we are prone to forget these things. 
So, Lord, we pray that by your grace, you'll help us now to trust you. But you'll help us to trust you tonight and tomorrow and to still be trusting you by the end of this week. And by your grace, to be trusting you by the end of our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.